Welcome to The Classical Corner, a new podcast brought to you by myself, Davina Clark, where I will delve into the secrets behind classical music and take you on a journey through some of the most inspired and beautiful works ever written. Throughout this series, I shall be joined by a selection of remarkable and talented musicians. Not only will we discuss our love for music, but I shall also discover the thoughts and processes behind my illustrious guests and what makes them the top of their game in the classical music field. So, come and join me in the Classical Corner. Internationally renowned Baroque violinist Rachel Podger is the leading interpreter of music from the Baroque and Classical periods. Described by the Times as the unsurpassed British glory of the Baroque violin, Rachel tours around the globe, performing as a soloist and director with the world's leading ensembles. She was the first woman to be awarded the prestigious Royal Academy of Music Cone Foundation Bart Prize, and in 2018 won Gramophone Artist of the Year. She's recorded over 26 albums with Channel Classics, including a multitude of Bach works, Bieber's Rosary Sonatas, Vivaldi, Mozart and Telemann. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Rachel to the Classical Corner today. Hello Rachel, how are you? Hello Davina, I'm really really well and very pleased to be here with you. (laughs) Fantastic, it's really wonderful to have you here on the Classical Corner. So before we get started on some in-depth musical discussions, I thought that our listeners might like to know a little bit about you and how you came to become such an internationally renowned Baroque violinist and how your musical journey started. Gosh, well, um, well, that's that's very flattering to, to hear that like that. Thank you very much. Um, well, I mean, my my, it's really just because I love um, baroque music uh, to start off with, and uh, well, any type of music, classical style too, and romantic, and medieval and Renaissance and everything really. But I, something in me just um, just responded to listening to Baroque music when I was growing up. And I guess I was just very familiar with it, really, because I grew up in a musical family, my father being a vicar, and we, we would often play in services, uh, definitely Easter and, and Christmas times. And we, so we had a little kind of family ensemble. And uh, because of the instrumentation in the ensemble, what what lent itself very well was a kind of trio sonata kind of formation. Um, so my father would sometimes play the flute or the keyboard. My brother and I both played violin and my mother played the cello. And then I also sang a lot when I was growing growing up um, and again that tended to be kind of slightly earlier repertoire actually kind of polyphony um, but also lots and lots of rock music lots of Handel and Bach so I was just very familiar with it um, so it was just a very natural thing to to go into more in-depth study uh, when I then did study I went to the Guildhall and, and uh, studied modern violin because there wasn't really a course an undergraduate course at the time for Baroque string playing um, and but I, I did get quite close to the people on the postgraduate course who were studying um, uh, HP historical performance and um, so learnt Uh, quite a lot from them and also got to know them really well and got into that world a little bit and I was very very keen on it already and it was a bit of a hobby at the time and it was funny at the time you know there was a bit of a hang-up about playing Brock instruments then still we're we're talking kind of early 90s because it was sometimes deemed as as something that you would do if you hadn't done very well on your modern 
instrument <laughs> and so I was a little bit embarrassed when people would say so what, what's it, what's in that other case you know what are you carrying on <laughs> like and then there was a kind of bit of a breakthrough in terms of how I felt about it just really because I, I entered an internal college competition which was Bach competition so Bach and I was the only one on Brock violin and it, it was I felt really quite stupid actually doing it just because I thought oh that I've got no chance at all you know against all these incredible modern violins and it, because I felt very quiet you know such a quieter instrument and I th- I've kind of felt that my scope for expression was 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 not as large as theirs and I don't know I just wasn't particularly confident and anyway I did the competition I felt I had nothing to lose and I ended up winning this thing so after that somehow <laughs> the fact that oh Rachel oh yeah she, she plays this weird other instrument you know she plays this other she plays this brock violin it's some somehow that i got a bit of street cred it was kind of okay i was accepted right so everything just followed on from there and that was that put you on the path to where you are now well it was such a kind of different time in a way because of course there was a lot of work around so i was just very lucky to be around at that time and i was asked to do a lot of these recordings and and a lot of them were actually kind of chamber formations so i did a lot with pavlo biznozik um he often asked me to be his second and I had some wonderful, amazing experiences playing the Monteverdi Vespers in the proms with Andrew Parrott conducting and incredible people playing in the band like uh, Nigel North on lute and, and the late John Toll on the keyboard and Nigel Rogers singing and it was really astounding and, and Bruce Dickey playing cornet with um, his Italian um, concerto palatino. I was really familiar with that style of music and partly because my parents had all of John Ellett Gardner's recordings, of course, and so I kind of just followed all of that. And then when he kind of turned Baroque in the 70s, early 70s, um, they kept, of course, buying his latest LPs at the time and then CDs. And I remember coming home one day, this was in Germany when I was uh, still at school, um, and the, the latest CD was playing, and, and it was um, a recording of some of the Bach cantatas. And I'll never forget thinking, Gosh, that sounds really different. That's a completely, very pure kind of different, you know, straight to the heart. And I was just really curious what that was about. And that that was my first kind of awareness, really, proper awareness of kind of gut string sound. So, Rachel, you perform as a soloist with many international groups. And certainly from my experience as a violinist, each ensemble tends to have its own style of playing. How do you embrace this new style while staying true to your own? Yes, absolutely. That's a very important question. Um, it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit like teaching actually. So again, you, you need to know who you are, um, but you need to be incredibly open-minded and also be, be a sounding board too, I think, because of course each group has their own, um, unique kind of makeup of, of, of different dynamics and, and different personalities and you really need to respect that and not just go in and kind of put a, put a stamp, a musical stamp on it. You need to really work with the tools that are there and the material that you have, uh, which, which is the beauty of it because otherwise every group would sound the same, of course, wouldn't it? So, so it's, it's, it's very much a, a marriage of two things, I think. So, so you're, what you're bringing to it and, and what they already have. And um, I, I really enjoy um, discovering that in the first rehearsal. 
especially, but all the way through. And, and just recently, I've actually been doing a few projects with some modern orchestras. And that's been very interesting and very challenging for me, because, of course, it's a completely different sound world. Of course. Uh, one, one, you know, that I'm, I'm used to from years ago, but um, to then try and explain or to try and get them to um, imitate some of the kind of the, the, the rougher sounds that the gut strings produce um, and also with articulation and all of those things because of course it being newer to them then people take that in a very different way than if it's second nature and then sometimes you have to explain things in a different way and then um, try them out with with their equipment to see whether that might work I mean I actually I did get them to play with with gut E strings and uh, with some Brock bows. So actually that did help a lot because they then just, you know, became more aware of the difference and, and how that could reflect uh, the, on the music. Absolutely. And the equipment we use is, is part of what makes the sound, obviously the gut strings and the shape of the bow. And I think if you're playing on a straight uh, sort of taut bow, uh, or for the listeners who don't know, a, a later style bow, which has actually got a straight stick, um, you really have to, to make a very conscious decision about the shapes that you might be making. Whereas with the Brock bow, a lot of that actually just comes naturally. Exactly. You're, you're just aware of it. It so, it so is. Yeah. Yes. You've done so many incredible concerts over the last few years, all over the world. And I know for me, the success of a concert is dependent on many factors, such as location, audience whether you've travelled on the day, um, also how the audience responds and the space that you're playing in. But which are the few that have jumped out at you for being unique in some way? Oh, gosh, it's yes, there's amazing halls, aren't there? Um, well, OK, a few that jump out. Um, I really, really loved playing in the Boston um, uh, Symphony Hall. Um, it, and it's a, it's a very... Um, it's... Well, it's basically a shoebox shape, you know, rectangular shape, which of course is the best really for uh, acoustics. And it's um, an old fashioned kind of layout where, where, you know, I think you have a high stage and then the audience sits low, below. Um, and it just, the acoustics were just so easy. And and I played, um, I think it was, yeah, Mozart. I played the A major concerto with the Handel and Haydn, with, with Harry Christopher's, in fact. Yes, um, yes. Conducting, which was such a delight in itself. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just kind of flowed. It was just very, very easy to play in that hall. And the audience was incredibly welcoming as well. So I had a, just a very nice kind of warm feeling, warm vibe. And then another one that stands out was actually uh, uh, more recently was with OAE, Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment in um, Melbourne. So we were on a tour of Australia. And, and again, I was playing Mozart actually. I was playing um, the first concerto in B flat and we were doing a couple of Haydn symphonies. And um, that's an amazing hall. It's a new hall. Um, it's called, I had to actually look it up again because I'd forgotten the name. It's called the Elizabeth Murdoch Hall. And um, there's, it's very, very beautiful inside. There's the most incredible wooden panelling. And it's, it's made of the Australian hoop uh, plantation pine. Wow. Or whatever it's called, a hoop hoop pine t timber or something like that. And um, it's very beautiful and it's meant to resemble... Um, you know, the colour that, that the back of a violin might have, you know, with lots of beautiful, oh, wow. grainy kind of 
uh, just wooden colours. It's just stunning to look at. And it's also kind of a bit wavy. So it's not just mm -hmm. flat. So I think the sound just bounces off in the, in the best way. Yes. And it's, it's one of those halls where you can play pianissimo and you will be heard at the back. I mean, it seats about a thousand, I think. Um, right. And so I was, I was being very... Um, experimental with with some of my dynamics and worrying whether it would come across so someone went right to the back of and course. said actually yeah I can hear everything you could whisper and I would hear you so that's really the the making of a great hall isn't it being able to have a really wide dynamic palette and it it certainly is and it gives you such a, a kind of sense of freedom that you can just say whatever you want to say and everyone will hear and, and be in on it and you can be as intimate as you like with the sound and then you can also be as joyful and as, as expressive. Of course and, and spontaneous as well which is the joy of working with an orchestra maybe when you're on tour and you've done three or four runs of the same concert being able to take that to the next level be spontaneous and actually play around with the dynamics due to the space that you're in yes and of course yeah. that that's also that uh, that's very true especially when you're going from hall to hall because that's really the only thing that changes on tour isn't it it all becomes about the, the next hall what's it going to be like in there and then and the audience exactly and then you might have a hall and an audience where you kind of think oh it's i, I can't really get this across it's not projecting or it's it's not working and um you know i mean we, we we're all very uh, guilty of beating ourselves up, aren't we, when, when, when we mm. perform? But then, the, you know, the feedback is always slightly different anyway. But then the next day, when you, uh, you're then kind of rewarded with the most amazing horn, you think, oh, right, okay, I can just be myself. <laughs> it's such a relief. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> We've done many concerts together, you and I, of course, as well. And yes. specifically, I, I was reminiscing the other day, remembering playing the Bach double violin concerto. Yes. Um, at the Lincoln Centre, but also in um, in the hall in Boston oh, as well, where that, you were just absolutely that hall is also absolutely beautiful. That's what, actually another favourite of mine, apart from the Symphony Hall. Um, yes. the, the, the hall in the New England Con Conservatory. Exactly. It's with, with Which the, is also with, a little like a yes a shoebox. Very wooden. That's right. It's it's a beautiful place, and it has a kind of sense of history, also, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And and we took that program then onto the Thomas Kirche in Leipzig mm. and played in the Bach Festival, which of course has such history and um, a, a just amazing to be part of that legacy. Yeah. Really, having that statue outside. Am and, amazing. Um, yeah. It's amazing, and of course, you know, the Wigmore Hall for us both. We've done many concerts there w too. Wigmore is always a favourite. It it always feels like coming home, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. So in terms of having a very intense performing schedule would you say you have a, a set pre-concert routine at all that you follow before you go on stage um yes yes that's very important to me actually um so I make sure I'm, I'm not in a rush sometimes you, you can't change that you know when you're relying on other people to, to or you have, have to go in a bus somewhere and you know things like that um so there are two kind of different routines so there's one for when I've got lots of time uh, and then this one for when I haven't got so much time. But but the one uh, where it's more relaxed, I just make sure that I eat or I stop eating about, um, you know, at least 45 minutes before the concert because I don't like performing with a full stomach. And um, and I make sure that I, you know, I'm kind of ready and, and dressed and all of that stuff in good time so that I can then do my warm-up. And warm-up is really... 
it used to be when I was a lot younger, it used to be, oh, right, I need to fix that bit and I need, oh, I'll just check that shift and, oh, yeah, there's this bit, this string crossing and, you know, just, just sorting out all the nitty gritty, um, doing all yes. the tricky bits. Um, but these days it tends to be more to do with breathing exercises and so it's something that I call boga, which is basically <laughs> a kind of mix of bow uh, and yoga, bowing and yoga, so I call it boga. And it's basically a uh, kind of exercises in the air with the bow, uh, with, with the breath. Mm-hmm. And it, it, you feel very oiled uh, throughout your body, actually, when you do that, especially when you're doing it. Anything with the breath makes you feel better. Absolutely. And especially if nerves come into it as well, having the breath yes. flowing in a, in a good way. Because I think we have to trust ourselves that the notes are under the fingers and whether it's going to be spotless or not, mm. is that's just down to the moment in the hall. Exactly. That's not, you can't prepare any more for that. Mm. I, I agree, so actually being physically warmed up yeah. and feeling mentally clear and focused yeah. uh, is, is very important. Yeah, with, with very little time, I basically just do all the essential things um, very quickly, but I'm aware of breathing while I get ready. So while I'm so, so I'm trying to kind of incorporate it in everything that I do, but in a smaller space of time, mm-hmm. and and then when I do warm up, I I actually just do kind of long notes, um, and do meso di voce, so kind of hairpin notes, so crescendo to the middle of the note, and then a decrescendo at the end, because you're basically warming up your whole hand and your arm, and you're stilling your mind that might still be on the bus or worrying about whether you're going to get there or, or you know wondering where you're whether your music's on your stand or who's going to get you in five minutes so you know whatever it might be because as you say that that's what the most important thing really to come out on stage with a still mind and actually it's something that I tell a lot of my students and think about a lot uh, actually most concert days is um the importance of leaving your life behind so you go you walk through the stage door yes and you know your life stays in <laughs> in the other part in the green room as it were and you're yeah. free you walk out and you are free and it's so liberating and it's a wonderful sense of freedom that you can then have because you're just there in that moment to uh, communicate with this amazing audience right there in front of you and to create a unique connection in that moment and it's only go- only going to be that evening absolutely i completely agree you play on the most beautiful instrument which i have been lucky enough to hear many times in person and if i'm right it's a genovese italian violin but i think it has no name do you know the history of the instrument and, and how did it come into your possession Yes, it, it actually does have a name, but it's not someone that we... Uh, is a kind of household name. Uh, Pesarini is his name. Right. We don't know much about him. Uh, we know that the instrument is from 1739, and um, I actually found it in its modern condition. Mm-hmm. Um, so it had obviously been changed sometime in the, in the latter 18th century. And, um, yes, well, the way I found it... So, so the story goes like this. So basically I was playing on, on a, a very beautiful violin, but it was a, a modern copy of a Strad made by Roland Ross. And um, I was very fond of it. It had a very even tone, um, but this was during the time when I'd been asked to record the Bach solos, Partitas and Sonatas. And I was thinking, gosh, do I want to do that on this? And I, I really hankered after something old. And I, I really love the sound of, of Italian violin. So I was just really keen to try and see if I could find one. So, um, 
so basically wherever I was performing and touring, I would, you know, everyone else would be going off to the pub or <laughs> to the cafe or whatever. <laughs> and I'd be going to the, the nearest violin shop and basically just have just seeing what they had. And that was an incredible experience in itself, just to try all these different violins. So I did find some beautiful things along the way. So I was in Australia and, and looking and, and in all over Europe and I think possibly I can't remember in America where I went but I think um, I even tried there and um, of course that this violin was waiting for me in London because I was living in London at the time um, at Bridgewood Nights it and right. um, I'd got to know them very well because I was constantly ringing up saying what have, what have you got what have you got <laughs> and so they it got to the stage where they would ring me and say okay we've got this would you like to come and have a look so I, I played it and, it and as I say it was in modern condition so it had modern strings on and a modern neck and bridge and everything but I thought gosh this is this is really quite quite something this sound I just loved the the richness of the sound mm -hmm. and then we started talking about putting it back into its baroque setup and yeah just took the plunge and and did it and the beauty of that was that um, I could go into the workshop and try it every now and again and then we could change things according wow. to how we wanted it to be and some so the neck they actually styled the neck to my hand as it were that's amazing yeah so it, it's kind of tailored so I felt very very lucky to have that to have the neck kind of tailored to my hand I was like, oh can you take a bit off on the left <laughs> and he said well I have to be careful because we can't put it back on <laughs> So if we're going to get really geeky, we're talking obviously about historical instruments, I would love to talk about strings for a moment. Yeah, of course. Um, you and I are obviously both passionate about playing on gut strings, um, and the repertoire that we, we perform calls for that, being from the Baroque and Classical periods. But perhaps you can explain to our listeners uh, what the attraction is of playing on gut strings, and the capabilities that they offer for the instrument absolutely well they're porous um so they're i like to call them naked strings because they they have no covering literally no. so if we compare them to a modern string um you know modern strings will have sometimes have a gut core some sometimes a synthetic core but they will be covered so wound with some kind of aluminium um and so in a way they will be more sturdy and so they are more reliable in terms of um, accurate, uh, just staying more in tune. Um, yeah. They also, they have a kind of, you can think of it as a kind of finish. You know, there's a kind of finish on, on the string. Yes. So that when you play it, you know exactly what sound you'll get. Which sounds ra rather good and reliable, doesn't it? It sounds like a good car that you know will, will go. Um, so uh, gut strings, on the other hand, are very unpredictable and um, uh, and there are actually uh, quite a lot of cons uh, with, with gut strings because they are so unpredictable. So if you, you think about this, this uh, porous material that has depth, so, so the thicker the string, the harder actually it is to, to make a good sound. So you have to employ uh, a technique with your right hand that really gets what we call get into the string so you you kind of play in, in a more kind of well just being very aware of the downward motion with the bow rather than drawing the bow across the string like you might with a covered string and of course the beauty of this is and this is of course why we do it because if there were only cons we wouldn't would we um is that the sound is so well i would say it's just very honest so you know exactly 
what is going on in the person while they play um, because it translates so so directly onto the string uh, and, and into the sound and so if you're slightly nervous or slightly shaky you i mean of course you can hide hide it somehow but it's much much harder to hide of course because you're not employing so much vibrato as well because vibrato is more of a kind of ornament um and you can actually hear the fragility of someone's sound which can be extremely touching and moving and the other thing is because it has depth um, I always like to see the string as, as something that has a kind of capacity. And so you can play at the top and the middle and then the bottom of the string. And because of that, you can kind of, while you're playing a long note, you can actually go into the string and come out again. So you can do all these incredible shapes, even on a long note, uh, very akin to a singer, in fact. So I do find that um, why I love playing on gut strings is is, is um, partly to do with that, the fact that you can manipulate them in this way to express and portray so many different shapes and colours. Absolutely, and really explore the colour palette of your instrument as well. Mm. I mean, for me, I think the, the word I'd use also as well as honest is, is earthy, if you're mm. trying to describe to somebody mm. what it feels like. It, it is it's hard work to get the right sound but after a lot of experimenting when you get to know your instrument and actually what it responds well to the capabilities that you have on the instrument are I feel much wider and greater than I would do playing on um, on steel or, or wound strings yeah yeah absolutely so as well as performing you are I know you're passionate about teaching and and hold honorary positions at the Royal Academy in London and Juilliard in New York and also the Royal Welsh College. How do you manage to keep an optimum balance between teaching and performing? And do you feel that one helps the other? Oh, yes, 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 I think that's a great question. Kind of rhetorical question there at the end, Davina, <laughs> because it definitely does, does complement each other. You learn so much when you teach. When I first came to it, I actually felt so out of my depth and just thought, gosh, who, how can I, you know, who am I to, to tell this person what to do or to guide this person? So I just started in a very kind of modest way, just to try and approach it more as a kind of discovery with the student. One-to-one -one is a, a, a really amazing experience, really, because you get to know the person so well. And you are really there to, to um, facilitate, you know, to, to help them find what what they're actually innately looking for and um, also to be a mirror very much to be a mirror because when we're starting out and learning a lot of the time we're just not aware of what we're doing and or why we're doing it or actually what we're looking for and I think a, a good teacher will will help you find that um, and in terms of playing and teaching balance, the balance in life is always a tricky one, isn't it? Yes. Because um, uh, being a freelance, you never quite know what your uh, what your year is going to look like, the, the shape of concerts and things. Of course. But um, yes, the, the way things go, I mean, you, you know, there are, of course, with teaching, there are terms. And so you can kind of work out certain things around. Um, and then you also kind of know when the festivals are happening throughout the year. So you just kind of get better at it, I, I think. You spent a lot of time away, obviously, touring and teaching and having an extremely full-on and very exhausting schedule. How do you unwind, not only when you're on tour after a concert, but also when you eventually get home after quite a long stint away? 
Yes, so I think there's, yes, a uh, lot of sleeping. Um, I, I do love going for walks. And I, I also like uh, just pottering and gardening. I love gardening. And I must say, during this lockdown, I've, I've had such a lovely time just planting and harvesting and clearing. And I do find we weeding is, I mean, my daughters would say, gosh, how can you enjoy weeding? But, but actually, I, I find it very therapeutic. It, it kind of frees up the mind and you end up thinking about things that you might not have. Um, so that is very relaxing, yes. And, and I think something our listeners might be interested to know is how far in advance do you learn music for a concert? I mean, obviously it completely depends on your schedule, what the project is, and if this is a, a solo project or a concerto or a recording. How would you say you prepare for these? And do you always have repertoire preparation sort of ticking away? Yes, I do. So I have, um, so I, I kind of, I'm quite good at writing lists and I have my plan. Um, so in terms of where the concert might be, so I'll make sure that I'm kind of th three projects ahead, if you see what I mean. So, so that that repertoire is kind of in my system. And um, I try not to listen to it. I try not to listen to recordings. So I try to just be playing it. And especially if it's something with an ensemble, or, uh, and especially if it's a concerto with orchestra, I learn all the parts. That's something that I, I love doing um, because you just get to know the piece in a completely different way. And then when it is repertoire that, that you know, that you have known and played for some years, and then when you kind of rekindle the, um, the enthusiasm for that piece by practicing it, you, you always find you're at a, at a different level, don't you find? Um, yes. Especially with, I mean, of course, with solo bath, there's always more to discover and not just musically, but also technically. You know, I, 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 sometimes I practice one of the movements now and I think, oh yeah, I could have, I could do that. Well, I'll tr change that, you know, whether it, it'll be a spacing of a chord or, or bringing out a voicing in a different way or a different bowing sometimes yes. or, or dif different fingering. So there, there's always more to discover actually. And uh, it's a joy to, to discover those things. Absolutely. And just to let the, let the piece evolve as you're mm. evolving in your life, really. Mm. You've produced so many wonderful discs, all of which are with Channel Classics, who have generously sourced some of your recordings to play on today's episode. So if you're listening, Channel Classics, thank you so much. Obviously, some of the ensembles you work with might choose the repertoire which is going to be recorded, but for your solo albums, such as Guardian Angel, how did you go about choosing repertoire for this? Okay, yes. So it was very much centred around the Guardian Angel, which of course is that beautiful solo Pasacaglia, which comes right at the end of the mystery yes. in Rosary Sonatas uh, by Bieber. And uh, so I was looking for pieces that would contrast with that. Um, and I did want to incorporate some Bach. So I was thinking, mm, okay, what, what can I, what shall I do? And I'd always been fond of the, the flute partita. Uh, and I'd actually kind of dabbled just to kind of when warming up, you know, you just play some, just something that happens to be in your mind. Or, and I kind of grew up with that piece because my father played the flute um, and would sometimes play a bit of the allemande. Um, and so I was, yes, and I'd also coached it, I guess, on, you know, in, in various circumstances with a recorder player or so, uh, or, or a flute player. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it, it worked really well. It, I mean, any Bach works, uh, on any instrument, I would even go as far as saying that. I mean, of course, he had certain instruments in mind that he composed for, but because of the uh, the genius that he is, it, it tends to transpose and transcend 
those kind of boundaries really, really well, much more than other composers. So there's some Matthias. There's uh, uh, Matthias is a 17th century composer. It's a kind of slightly folky in style. So they're kind of short little dances. And um, I spent many years playing a lot of his music with an ensemble called the Palladian Ensemble. Uh, we did lots of 17th century music. And um, there's an ensemble of a recorder, violin, gamba, and lute. And um, so I was just very familiar with that style and kind of thought, yeah, just experimented with what might work. And so I put a little suite together of those. And then we also have the Pizendel solo sonata on there as well. What else is on that disc? Oh yes, some Tartini, of course. Yes, the, the beautiful sonatas by Tartini. You've obviously just talked about Bach, and I know for you, like me, Bach is, is God, really. For the non-classical musicians out, out there, would you be able to explain why he's such a, a genius and what it is about his writing that you and I both adore so much. Yes, um, gosh, yes, it's a big subject, isn't it? Hard to put in a nutshell, but... Well, it's it's complex music, but it's approachable, I would say, and there, there are lots of different elements to it. I think the elements that, that really speak to me... I mean, I absolutely adore his fugues, uh, which are very... You know, it's a kind of serious thing, because it, it's serious in the fact because of the counterpoint and there's so many movements and different voices to concentrate on so it's actually quite hard work to listen to if you're not used to listening to that mm -hmm. um, I find it very kind of cleansing listening and playing to flute to fugues um, and I try to kind of either play one or listen to one most days and I, I really notice if I don't Actually, it's a little bit like, um, you know, sweeping out the brain has, has that kind of effect yes. on me. It's kind of just re really beautifully clarifying. Um, and then, of course, the other element which I adore so much is, is the dance element that you have in his music, even in non-dances. So, of course, you have them in a suite of dances, but you have so many beautiful um, and delightful and touching dance character moments in very serious music. I mean, you get them in his passions. Um, even if you just think of the, the first chorus of the Matthew Passion with the, with the bass line, which is a compounded yes. boom, 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 um, figure. And it's obviously, it's a serious uh, topic, but uh, it's, uh, yeah, he just manages to find the lightness in, in the suffering. Um, and I think that's incredibly moving. It just m moves me every time. And there's, there's also so, so much music. I mean, I, I know a lot, you know, a lot was lost, wasn't it? A hundred cantatas or so were lost, but the cantatas that we have, they, there's, there's so much variety, so much invention. But in terms of his solo writing, I, I just, as you have already talked about, I just love how everything is already written there. The bass is there, the melody's there, how the lines interweave also, of course, in a fugue, very intellectual writing. Um, but it's so beautifully composed with, with lovely contours and, and, you know, how the dynamics are written in already, just through the shaping of, of how he's how he's written. And I think this is so evident in his, in his solo works, of course, which, which brings me to your rather unusual recording, as you've just mentioned, of the uh, unaccompanied cello suites, which you've actually transcribed for the violin. Would you say that there were more challenges technically and instrumentally playing the cello suites rather than the violin sonatas and partitas, you know, how they lie onto the fingers and the arpeggiated figures? Mm. Uh, maybe you can explain a little bit about that and, and how you transcribe the suites. Mm. So 
the transcription was very easy. I basically put it up a fifth, but well, apart from the sixth suite, um, it's basically, you know, you can actually read read it off the manuscript, although we, we don't have the original facsimile from, from Herr Bach himself, but we have the Anna Magdalena version. And actually there are some other versions too, and they all, it's a big talking point actually, because they all kind of differ from each other, uh, note-wise and bowing-wise. And the version that most people rely on is actually the Anna Magdalena version, even though some of her bowings uh, the, the slurs and things, especially in, uh, in, in passages that repeat, so in, in sequences, they seem to differ a lot from each other. I tend to agree with David Watkin, he, he writes about this uh, really brilliantly, um, basically saying that, of course, you know, the rhetorical language was just so clear to everyone around at the time that those kind of things would have been so taken for granted that you would know that that kind of figuration would, of course, be slurred like this. In terms of transcribing, so th there wasn't really very much to do. Apart from in the sixth suite, of course, because that's written for five-string cello. Um, it's, it's interesting because that one I can actually play in its original key because, of course, it's in D major because the added string on the cello is the E string. And, of course, uh, you know, we have an E string on the violin and most of the piece is actually on the top four strings of this five-string cello. So it works on the violin. You, you are missing a few notes on the the non-existent C string. So when I performed, actually performed it the other day and um, I put those notes up and I kind of weaved them into the texture, you, you do lose out some of the, obviously the, the compass. Yeah, it's just a different thing. Um, in, but luckily there are not that many passages that work out that way. And I couldn't resist playing it because it's just such an uplifting piece. It's just incredibly bright and golden. Yes. Well, I feel like you should all hear some of Rachel's gorgeous recording. So here is an extract from her disc with channel classics of Bach's Cello Suite No. 1 in G major. another pioneer of the Baroque period, I think that we should touch on the brilliant bohemian Austrian composer that is Heinrich Ignaz Franz Bieber. For those of you who don't know, it is worth mentioning that Bieber was an extremely experimental composer and was one of the most important writers for the violin in the history of the instrument. As a player, he had a monumental technique allowing him to travel all around the instrument, up into stratospheric positions, which was rather revolutionary during the 17th century. His complete mastery of the instrument allowed him to push compositional boundaries for the violin further than ever before, and to include all manner of crazy techniques and special effects, including scordatura tuning. 
which involves tuning the strings of the instrument up or down specific in intervals. You can hear all of these amazing techniques and his revolutionary writing style in his rosary sonatas or mystery sonatas, as they're sometimes called, which you have recorded absolutely beautifully. Would you be able to explain a little more about the story behind the rosary sonatas and what they represent? Yes, of course. No, it's, it's an most amazing subject um kind of unique pieces really with so many different sonatas with uh, all these individual tuning systems so as as you've explained um so there are 14 different tunings in 16 sonatas um they, they're kind of grouped in threes so there are um, the five um, joyful mysteries and then there are the, the five sorrowful mysteries and the five glorious mysteries and then we have the guardian angel at the end which is the Pasacalia for solo violin um, and uh, so all of the other sonatas are with continuo and they they are all depicting a stage in the life of Christ and Mary so you start out with the Annunciation and you really you can kind of imagine the angel kind of appearing. I mean, a lot of it is very programmatic and kind of pictorial writing. You can yes. really kind of hear the fluttering and, you, you know, I mean, it depends how far you want to go really with that. But, but uh, it, it, it's very evocative and, and it really sparks the imagination. And then um, uh, it actually goes all th th through the, through the uh, um, different stages, including the crucifixion, resurrection, and everything. And then we finish off with the coronation of Mary in the story and then after that in a way we have this kind of concluding guardian angel which kind of sums everything up really which is the, the Pasale um, and that stands very much on its own and so, so as, as I've done uh, many times and continue to do it's a really lovely centerpiece in a recital or so but having said that most of these sonatas, these uh, um, mysteries or, or, uh, or rosary sonatas, they all stand on their own very, very well, actually. The only thing that would make you not want to put it into a programme is the tuning, because you, you probably need another instrument. And when I have performed them, um, I normally have about four violins. I was going to ask, <laughs> yes. Yes, at my disposal, and I have a rather kind of rigorous plan how I have to tune them. So I play one sonata, and then I have to retune that instrument, um, and then pick up another one and tune that as well, so it gets used to it, and then and then play on the next one that's already been prepared earlier. If you see yes. what I mean. and it, it's quite nice to do that in front of the audience. So of they, they, so I have a table with with the violins there, so they can actually see what's going on, and you can explain a little bit because it, it isn't a fascinating thing to, to watch and to see. And um, in terms of sound, and you might think, you know, why did he do this? Why, why did he write all these different tunings? And it's all about the sound world and the symbolism and the, the, the meaning behind the different keys and the different spaces between the strings. Um, so the more painful the story gets. So we have uh, you know, in the in the sorrowful mysteries, we have agony in the garden, we have scourging, we have crowning thorns, carrying of the cross, and then the crucifixion. So it's it's a we're in a, a painful moment. So the tuning um, gets more and more painful. So the the bottom string, so the G string, at one point has to be tuned up to a D. Um, so which is a fifth. Uh, so it's very very taut. You know, it's high. It's literally highly strung. <laughs> And the top string comes down. So so at the closest moment, I think 
they're within i have to check exactly but they are within a very close range in 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 the most extreme case the most extreme one is really the resurrection where you are instructed to cross over the the middle two strings so that forms uh, a physical cross and of course that's what the resurrection is all about and he shows it so physically i have to say we just discussed the annunciation which is the first movement of the whole set and I just love it. It's so Bieber. I don't know how to describe it in any other way. It's <laughs> haunting and scaling mm. and all the sequences with the with the held bass note. Yes. Would you which would you say your favourite one is, do you think? I think my favourite one might be the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin. I just love the it's it's quite it's quite long that one actually. But I love the chaconne. It's got a fantastic chaconne in it, you know, so an ostinato bass line with variations on top. And the, it's quite folky there and there's some, some kind of notes that don't fit into the scale that he's put in there. Some players think that might be a mistake and and kind of make it sound correct, but I I like to leave it in. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, here's an extract from Rachel's recording of Bieber's Rosary Sonatas, and this is the opening movement, which is called Annunciation. we've already touched on your Guardian Angel album and how you picked all the repertoire for that which was Matthias, Bach, Tartini and Pizendel and that brings us straight back to Bieber again um, which is his 
his Passacaglia. When you say it's it's based on the guardian angel, is this on the painting of the Feast of the Guardian Angel? Or I was actually reading that there was a hymn that had the same bass line um, that's used in the Passacaglia. Yes. And I was wondering whether the album Guardian Angel was, was chosen because of the Passacaglia that you inserted into it. The actual album was, well, that was kind of the centrepiece, really. Yeah. And what 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 I love about that piece so much is that so much information is in that Passacaglia, which keeps changing with the variations, of course. Yeah. And um, even though it's very, it's very simple, it's just a tetrachord. You know, it's a descending tetrachord, four-note tetrachord, which was a very popular Passacaglia bass line at the time, in fact. And also the key is, is very significant. Uh, it it has real pathos and uh, and kind of um, it's 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 quite a devout key, um, and I like to think you know the guardian of a guardian angel being being a, a someone well or, or, or of a spiritual being who is there with you, uh, not just in good times but in especially in bad times you know kind of not letting you cross the road when an accident might have occurred if you did and things like that like we we some of us like to think, and because it's constant I do think that. Um, I like to think of the guardian angel being in the baseline, especially when when it's disguised and you're just wondering where it's gone because it, sometimes he puts it into the top line and and uh, it's not so apparent. And so I like to think of it in that way. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think you should all hear a little bit of Rachel's gorgeous performance of Bieber's Passacaglia from her album Guardian Angel.
onto something slightly different now. I really wanted to talk about your beautiful album of Haydn and Mozart duos for violin and viola, which you recorded with the brilliant Jane Rogers. What a gorgeous disc. And, and Jane is a, a really dear friend of both of ours, <laughs> I think. Um, and the combination of your two sounds together is just heavenly. I have to say, Jane makes such a warm sound. And <laughs> honestly, every work on that disc just, just glows. What would you say the challenges are of, of making a disc with a duo partner uh, with a lack of continuum? It almost must feel like a solo disc, but you've got someone else to take into consideration as well. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, it's, it's very exposed music, uh, very exposed writing. And of course, the, the Mozart duos, uh, we only have two of those, yes. um, uh, are very different from the Michael Haydn Mm-hmm. Um, uh, duos that are on that disc and of course there's that wonderful story isn't there that Mozart was helping out Michael Haydn because uh, Michael Haydn I should say because uh, they were both in Salzburg and um, Michael Haydn apparently had been um, commissioned to, to write six duos uh, but he only managed four to the deadline he, I think there was an illness or something so um I think yeah. Along came Wolfi and and said, "Oh, I'll I'll help I'll help you out." And um, so he wrote these two, and, and who knows, we might not have them otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing is that they are so different. They were actually first catalogued under the Michael Haydn um, duos, and so everyone thought at first that they were by him. And then, yes. of course, you know, it was then discovered quite quickly. I think that they were of a different nature because, of course, the writing is is very equal for both. In instruments in, mm-hmm. in the Mozart and very different with in, in the Haydn um, so yes yeah, so, so in, in Michael Haydn the um, bass line is very much a bass line yes which which uh, Jane uh, enjoyed very much <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the thing about playing with Jane or with uh, anyone who plays a bass line really well is that it's just completely reliable so yeah. she's like a rock you know exactly where she's going to be but she'll also be there she'll be a little bit elastic if you need to take a little bit of time over a little corner or into an interrupted cadence or something like that and uh, so she's yeah she's she's the best of both worlds really and Again, in, in the Mozart, where she's more of a duo partner, she mm-hmm. she really went for it. And uh, it, it yeah, sometimes it felt like sword fighting. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> and at other times, it was, you know, we were just kind of chatting away together. It felt very natural. I mean, we've known each other since college days and we've um, been through a lot together, you know, lots of musical experience and, and, and personal experience too. So um, there's you don't have to hide anything you can just completely be yourself and it's also fine to to not agree at times of course yeah it's true friendship (laughs) absolutely well here is an extract from the first movement of mozart's g major sonata for violin and viola performed beautifully by jane rogers and rachel Thank you. 
So Rachel, you've got a really exciting project coming up later this year with Christopher Glynn, I think, which is involving some Beethoven sonatas and three unfinished Mozart sonatas too. How did this come about and what inspired you to pick this repertoire? Well, I've always been been keen to explore further beyond uh, Mozart and Haydn and um, absolutely adore Beethoven, of course, and played lots of his music when I was a teenager and, and of course, at college, you know, just within the kind of main repertoire exploration. Um, And it's actually a very different thing, as you yourself know, to be playing that with gut strings and uh, with a different kind of bow, um, so a, a very similar shape to a modern bow, but a much lighter kind of bow. Um, and it's to explore the, the contrast in the dynamics is such a different thing where it's, it's actually quite hard work with gut strings to make uh, the, the sforzati and, and the chords sound fortissimo and, and then in the next bow you have a pianissimo. And to get all of those contrasts, mm. I think, is, is tricky for anyone on any instrument. Um, but if you imagine at the time what it must have been like for, for a violinist who'd never seen that before, you know, and having mm-hmm. spent so much time uh, playing Baroque music and early classical and galant music and, you know, you know, kind of in between Baroque and classical and, and then early classical and classical, um, to then come to Beethoven from there is, is, is really wonderful because it, it really does seem impossible at first. You, you can imagine how, how it might have been then. And I love that about it. And uh, Chris is playing. Um, we've been trying out lots of different kind of pianos. And uh, we did some concerts but before the lockdown in, in uh, early spring. Um, uh, various of the Beethoven sonatas just, just trying things out. And it's, it's a real joy to play with him. He's a wonderful musician. And so he's having a lot of fun trying out things on a, on a different earlier piano because there's so many different colours. And of course, during the time of, of Be- Beethoven, the, the piano changed so much, didn't it? And, and Beethoven kept pushing for more sound and more, more notes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's this image of, of course, because he was starting to go deaf already, is this image of him putting his his head on the piano so he could kind of feel the the excitement and the drama of of pounding on the keys. You know, you just kind of see him do that. Um, yes. And and so it's such a different language. It's it's a completely different world, and um, one that I I just love to get uh, lost in. It's, it's a project uh, realised by Professor Timothy Jones, who has done quite a few um, completions of various unfinished um, bits and pieces by, by Mozart. And so he embarked on um, uh, finishing these, these fragments that he found of started movements for violin and piano. And so that's, that's what we're going to do. So they're going to be world premieres. Very, very exciting. That is very exciting. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, before we finished, I I wanted to move back to Johann Sebastian, of course, and to one of my favourite recordings of yours, which is actually your Bach Violin Concertos disc with your own ensemble, Breck and Baroque. For our listeners that don't know, how did you form Breck and Baroque, and what was the idea behind it, and and how did the group emerge? Mm. So, um, 
Yes, I suppose it was a, a stage in my life when, in my musical career, where I was playing with lots and lots of different kinds of groups. Um, and I'd, in my personal life, I'd had children and we'd moved to Wales and uh, I'd been asked to get involved in a local festival uh, in, in Brecon. And at first I was a little bit uh, cautious about it because I knew that I wasn't quite sure how much time I'd be able to devote to it, of course, because of being away so much and then also having a family. But it did come about in the end and I needed to ask um, some of my friends to come and play. And that's really how the group came about. So it came out of this uh, uh, Brecon Baroque Festival, which runs every year and is, is now in its 14th year. Um, and uh, yeah, just, just asking friends of mine who I knew from college, um, so Jane Rogers, Alison McGillivray, and then some of my ex-students who, well, it's a very long time ago now, of course, Boyan, Boyan Cicic and Johannes Palmzoller at the time, and they've all kind of, most of them have moved on to do their own things and then, you know, very much having their careers in, in their own right and doing brilliantly. Um, and so it's now it's more of a kind of flexible group where we'll do whatever, um, uh, repertoire uh, you know whatever formation we need for the repertoire so it could be violin sonatas just with a continuo um, or it could be a group of maybe nine people so strings and wind and continuo and then it can also be it can expand to an orchestra too but it basically was born from from the festival and so it does feel, it, it's it's a lovely thing really because you know regular festival goers they kind of feel like they have some ownership of of the group which is rather sweet Absolutely. so when people return year after year it's rather lovely so there's a kind of connection yes mm. i absolutely adore your recording of bart's concertos for three violins um specifically the first movement because it's just it's so joyous i was listening to the other day and my heart is just bursting out of my chest with 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 joy and love i love how the motifs are passed around between the fiddles and um well the writing but four three essentially solo violins but the whole thing within the chamber setting it's it's amazing and um i know from having played in your group Brecon Baroque myself that there's such a lovely energy in that ensemble and it really comes across on the disc i have to say <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Um, so this is the opening of Bach's Concertos for Three Violins, played by Rachel Podger and Brecken Baroque.
of all the recordings we've discussed today can be found in the Spotify playlist for this episode of The Classical Corner. Well, Rachel, it has been an absolute delight to chat with you today. Thank you so much for sharing your musical wisdom with us all and giving us a glimpse into your life as an international violinist. It's been really glorious to have you here in The Classical Corner. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Davina. Absolute pleasure, and I hope we'll be back on the concert platform again together soon. Let's hope so. Thank you all so much for joining me for another episode of The Classical Corner. I hope you'll tune in next time when we shall continue to explore some more glorious music together. In the meantime, I wish you all a wonderful week. Goodbye. <laughs>